What's going on, guys and gals? My name is Chris Tondewald, and this is Ambition Radio. This is a podcast where we try to find people that have found that balance between their life, family, career, and the pursuit of their passions, dreams, or hobbies. This episode, we feature Eva Jade Landon. Eva is a musician and a member of the Interfaith Center at Miami University, a safe, welcoming interfaith space for students and community members to engage in dialogue, education, and service. I've known Eva for years, so it was nice catching up with her, talking about her journey through music and her new album coming up, her work with the Interfaith Center and all our religious studies, and stopping the ringing in my ear by getting punched by a Trump supporter. I'll have all her links in the show notes. As a side note, the audio kicked my ass a little. My track sounds a bit wonky here and there. I'm a bit rusty after being too lazy to edit. My apologies. As always, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts, follow me on Spotify, and subscribe on Google or however you get your podcast. Thank you for everything. Here's the show. Enjoy. The missing of the sounds from my radio has really fucked me up quite a bit, even recording and trying to edit. Because now, yeah, yeah. Are, you, are you like mixing in stereo and so you can't hear? <laughs> yeah, basically, I have to put everything mono. But even when it's like on my speakers, I'm on my monitors. I can only really hear from the left side anyway. So it's just it's so awkward to try to listen to something that you're actually actively trying to listen to it and then only hearing part of it. Right. And it's fucking weird. Before I lost half my hearing i was trying to like make beats and stuff mm-hmm. and i can't even like fade i can't go uh, back and sucks. forth i can't yeah, yeah yeah so it's really awkward but i do think my left one has gotten a little bit better and there's nothing they can do like nah can, no. no and they make me <laughs> mad every time like, like I, I get so angry because i'll go there and they're just like ha sucks for you <laughs> are you there's, serious yeah there's nothing that they can do with it there's no surgery no like no you can't get like a hearing aid or anything like there are some that i think they're starting to come out that can block the frequency because that's basically okay. what it is so it's just it's something vibrating in there or, or something I, I don't know all the science behind it but basically the aids that i saw will help block out that frequency which is the one that actually stops all the other sound from coming in. So maybe we'll see. So it's not necessarily like you lost your hearing, but rather that there's this like white noise overpowering everything. For the most part, that's the best way that I can describe it. That sucks. (laughs) Like a constant ringing in your ear. (laughs) Sounds fucking terrible, man. I'm sorry. A little bit. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's not great. It it definitely doesn't make me feel good, but I do, when I was doing shows and I was actually running sound for the most part, because I had my buddy Steven that did all the, the hard work and I just tried to make sure that it sounded good. Right. I would have to turn my left ear to the stage to make sure everything is balanced because then I couldn't hear anything from the right side at all and it was just fucking wild and that happens when someone talks to me it happens Mm -hmm. when I'm listening to music at a show or anything because I'll hear someone say something and they might be from the right side but it just echoed correctly and it just got into my left one so I always think someone's on the left side and not the right side and it's fucking wild so if you're at a show and you're standing like away from the stage that just means you're listening yeah yeah exactly exactly that's exactly what it is yes I'm not trying to ignore anybody right. or be a weirdo in the middle I'm just trying to listen to it it's fine yeah and I've gotten into the habit of trying to use earplugs now after it's already right. fucking spoiled, which is really annoying. Well, you don't want it to get worse. I mean, well, I don't think so. <laughs> I 
You're like, no, this is as bad as it is. <laughs> if it gets worse, then I just lose it. I don't have this annoyance. I don't have this fan in my ear the entire time. Are you time. saying that you want, you're kind of hoping it just goes away? Like That might be better. <laughs> I think it might be better. I don't know. That's what I want. So my, my biggest fear is having it with the other side of my hearing that's my biggest fear to where i can't hear shit and then i have to learn so it would be better if you just like the other side was silent and you had you could hear just the one side yeah Yeah, i could see that yeah i don't want to chop it off but i do want to plug it (laughs) i think that would be the good way to do it because i don't think chopping it off really helps the whole sound thing it just makes it to where no i think you you just not have an ear yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) i don't paint enough for that so right you don't have a van gogh future no but i would definitely put like a whole bandage on there just to block i don't know if that would actually help though (laughs) you're just gonna start shoving things in your ear to see what (laughs) what will drown it out (laughs) yeah yeah, yeah. i think though if i do that the sound gets worse (laughs) I mean, this seems like a losing situation all around. So I just need the tinnitus to go away and just be deaf completely in that ear. I think that's the the goal here. So just like pay someone to bust your eardrum. Yeah, yeah. You just get... So I want... I've been wanting to do like jujitsu or martial arts in general. Mm -hmm. uh, And I'm broken, so I I never go do it. And I'm also lazy because I like sleeping. So (laughs) that's another reason why I never go do it. But I think if I could just pick a fight with someone good enough i could just get a, a <laughs> i totally thought you were gonna say you wanted to do this to like get your equilibrium back on balance no, or something you're no, just no. like no i just want someone to punch me in my yeah. ear <laughs> uh, I, I think that would actually work out pretty well yeah you could just go pick a fight with someone at the trump rally <laughs> I, so i don't i don't want to do that like then then there's tv involved there's a uh, video there's all the viral stuff I don't want to fight them. I just want them to be quiet and disappear forever. And well, see you if don't that have works. to fight them. You just have to uh, make them hit you in right. the ear. So that's that's the biggest thing. <laughs> I don't want them to have a victory over me. That's oh, okay. It. So you don't- I know I'm using them, but it still also <laughs> looks like I'm losing, and I don't want that. Right. So you just don't want a viral video of you getting knocked out by a drum Yes. <laughs> I think that's the one. Right. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. All right. That makes sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want that to happen. I, I don't want I don't want to hear Snowflake and then next thing I know, I don't remember anything for the foreseeable future. <laughs> that, that would not be great, especially if I forget things. But you'd be and, a victim. Like, sure. You would be the Snowflake, like, you know, spokesperson. Yeah. Yeah. That's not <laughs> what I want either. I don't want to be a Snowflake. No. <laughs> I am interested to see what kind of pay that would Right. They would pay you to like go on all of the shows and talk about how the the big bag Trump supporter beat you up. (laughs) That is is definitely not what I want. That is not what I want to be known for. Just, yeah, I don't want to. That, yeah, I'd I'd rather just be known for not being able to hear anything ever. Than being the the liberal snowflake that got his ass kicked. I, guess. I don't know. That might get you some late, right? They'll Maybe. be like, "Oh, he's so sensitive," mm. <laughs> and he was advocating for like, you know, people of color. Right, like, and no was, one yeah, actually knows right. that. I just want right, the, the, <laughs> right, the like, to stop. yeah, like nobody has to know the backstory. They can think you were like standing up to this like angry racist, and you got hit. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it could play in your favor. It could. It could. <laughs> I just. It would be really hard not to swing first, so we would have to figure that out. You just have to keep thinking about how you want the ringing in your ear to go away. (laughs) 
<laughs> also, yeah. you probably wouldn't hear that it was happening. You'd just be <laughs> like, <laughs> you just have to remember to turn to the right side. <laughs> yes, that's exactly that's exactly right. Yeah, I try to walk away, but just make sure that I'm angled right away. Right. To make I make sure I look like the bigger person, but it's really just to right. give them a better So I'll target. just come with you and I'll instigate and I'll be like, See, this is perfect. I'll be like, you're not going to hit him. I bet you can't hit him in his ear. <laughs> I bet you can't hit him in his left ear. That is, is not. It, is it the yeah, left or the right? It's the right. The right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Just because if I lose the left, I'm gonna, I might just quit. I might so just I'll quit accidentally life. say the wrong ear and then you're just like fucked. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, if someone hits me there, I, I might just be like, all right, I'm out. See you guys. I'm going to just I, – I wouldn't be able to do music. I wouldn't be able to do the podcast. I wouldn't be able to do anything that I enjoy, which is terrible. Yeah. I would have to have subtitles on all the time, which is not a good idea. <laughs> you have to have subtitles on. Like, you're not like – well, I, I might have to learn, like, ASL. No, I just have to subtitle everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Oh, I would have to get my handwriting way better than what it is. Because then I wouldn't be able to communicate. Because mm-hmm. my- you're not going to, you're like, you're like, I'm too lazy to learn ASL. Because so like, <laughs> I'm too lazy to go to karate. So. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. Hmm. Yeah, I, I don't think that I would learn the actual language. For sure. I think I would just write notes to everything or have just like a series of preloaded answers. <laughs> what? Yeah, I think right. just carry a pack of cards. And you just like, <laughs> you should just get like an Etch-A-Sketch or like a. All right. So these are skills that I don't have oh, okay. that I don't know if I want to learn to get them. <laughs> so these are two things that I don't know if, if that's what will happen. Etch-A-Sketch. Man, I've seen the people that make Etch-A-Sketches, like the actual art mm-hmm. on there. That's a lot. You just have to write like yes <laughs> or no. Would that be Easier or harder than a pad and a pen? I think it would be much I mean, more difficult. It would be more entertaining. Be <laughs> like, <laughs> I think you could get some fame being like the extra sketch guy that. Yeah, so that would be great. Got punched by a Trump supporter yeah, and now uh, only communicates via etch a sketch. <laughs> <laughs> well, all I'm, all I'm thinking is if I get into an argument with a significant other in the future and I have to like furiously go <laughs> twist some knobs, right? And then it just be <laughs> I five mean, minutes later, and they finally get a response. <laughs> do you really think that you're gonna find a significant other willing to only mm. write down every conversation because you won't learn ASL? <laughs> it's like going into no. this relationship, we can only communicate via notepad. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can throw a telegram in there, right? <laughs> Right. Yeah, I think some some lights. The oh, what is oh, what is that? Morse code and light. Morse we could do that. Yeah, right. yeah, we could do that. And then hopefully they don't have a seizure. But like no one with vertigo <laughs> or out. I don't think anybody would have the patience to do that. I, I really don't. To communicate Morse code? No, probably not. <laughs> no. No. Yeah, that's where the 50-50 in the relationship really swings the other way. Right. And just like, right. I feel like you're asking for like 90-10 at this point. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And I don't talk a lot in general, so that's great. So it'll be fine. So you're just like nonverbal communication. That's where it's at. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's great. Yeah, I have a whole audio podcast that I don't talk in general. That's dumb. But yeah, I think that would yeah, be... Yeah, you hate talking, obviously. That's why you have a podcast. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's also why I'm a salesperson, right? Right. I, I, fuck, this is all terrible. <laughs> Everything that I don't like, I 
actually already do. So as far as all the talking, I'd rather great thing about the pandemic, you don't have to talk to anybody. You can be alone. It's great. You can put subtitles on and then be quiet the entire time. That's fine. Mm -hmm. But I lost where I was. Yes. So I don't, the whole like not talking in a relationship would be fine because then I can just be quiet and just exist next to a person. I think that would be fine. I don't know if we would have a very long relationship. (laughs) Well, it depends how good the sex is. (laughs) (laughs) It's not. I'm sorry. Ahead of time. Uh, (laughs) I'm sorry. Like, we're not going to talk and the sex is like, meh. So, like, this is what you're getting. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. It's a great deal. I don't know if you know this, but it's free. So you can just be around me and it's cool, right? Right. And I should write your Tinder profile. (laughs) (laughs) Will not speak. May learn Morse code before learns ASL. Will not have, will have just mediocre sex. It might get you there. It might not. Who knows? He does have low expectations. (laughs) If you want a fulfilling relationship, this is not the person for you. I don't know. Maybe, maybe this is like an untapped fetish. Somebody out there. You think so? Yeah. (laughs) Hmm. I don't know. I don't know if. How I would feel about that because I don't even know if I You're like, like. I don't what know I'm how I feel about being fetishized. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's it. That's exactly right. That's not what I was thinking, but that those words are out there now. Yeah, I don't know how I feel about being fetishized. Fetishized? Did I say that? Yeah, maybe. That's the one thing with ha- having headphones on is that you already think that you're not able to speak, and that's a great thing to where you can actually hear that you're not able to speak. Just a side note. Either way, I'm not a fan of it. I don't, I don't want to be objectified. I don't want to be... Uh, it's not really a sex symbol. It's uh, sexualized. What is the term that I'm trying to think of all the, the things that I don't want to be that women already are? <laughs> I was about to say, it's a good thing you're not a woman. Yeah. You're like, gosh, it sounds terrible. To yeah, be like- it's really bad. <laughs> I don't know who would do that at all. I wouldn't. That's Yeah, I don't know how to feel about being in that... I guess that's how you have to realize that there are other people that are other than you and they have feelings and thoughts. And- <laughs> wow. I wow. Mean, wow. That's, that's <laughs> such a revelation. I mean, you really changed the way I see the world. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So speaking of the, the world and all the things that you're doing, you have new music that you're working on. You're part of what church is it? <laughs> so it's not a church. It's, it's not a church. It's a, like a religious studies or... I'm not. I'm, no, no. I no. remember things, but not all the details. So I work for an interfaith center. Mm. I do have a degree in religious studies, so that's okay. probably where you got. That. I was getting there. <laughs> I, it was a long way, but I was getting there. But I, everyone always thinks the interfaith center is a church. I think maybe that's what it is. Okay, because mm-hmm. it sounds like a, a Unitarian kind of thing, or one of the other universals that doesn't like a non-denominational. Mm-hmm. See, words. Non-denominational. They're they're working. Yeah, it sounds like that it's not like an actual, like it's a code name for a church. (laughs) Is that, I think that's. Like we're trying to be subtle. Yeah. We're not, we don't want you to think we're a church, but secretly we are. Right. Is that that what you're getting at? Yes. Yes. Where you're not a church, you're a tabernacle or you're not a, oh, what are the other ones? I think you're just like naming worship houses of different denominations. Yes, yes, (laughs) yes. Is that not what an interfaith center is? 
Well, not exactly. I mean, <laughs> we're not we're not a church pretending to be a tabernacle. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. We'll just we'll just clear that up right there. No, an interfaith center is more. I would care, compare it more to like a community. Okay. Like a collective space where people of all diverse religious, spiritual, and secular worldviews can exist, coexist in a space, and come together, learn from one another. You know, we we definitely allow people of different denominations and just def- faith, all different types of faith beliefs to come in and use the space. So say you are from a church and you have, you know, a Bible study group that you want to do and you need a space, you can come to the Interface Center. But if you're a Muslim and you need a place to pray, you can also come to the Interface Center. So it's it's not, we don't promote any one faith over another or even non-faith. I mean, we have board members who are atheist and atheists are welcome in the space, as well as people who are spiritual but not religious, which we're at a college campus and that's like, the fastest growing demographic right, among college right. students is spiritual but not religious. So basically, it's more of a space to just build, cultivate relationships between people who maybe wouldn't have a chance otherwise to be exposed. I mean, most people stay in very like homogenous communities. You know, we don't we don't really venture outside what we know. So this is a space where people can kind of come together and like find commonality with people that they may not otherwise be exposed to. Yeah. Cause people are people and they're, we all have common stuff and interfaith would definitely bring everybody together. Right. And then there's always that uh, common humanity in there that people aren't terrible for the most part. <laughs> well, we hope. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's really cool. Cause then you can hopefully bridge the gap between some of those. And it's a very small touch, I guess it's not, oh, hey, you guys all have to play together and hold hands. This is just a way to intermingle throughout yeah. normal stuff, right? Well, for like, yeah, the in this does the, sen- the sense of how like the center exists, yeah. Like different people of different faiths could come in and study together or do, you know, it could be very casual. But I'm the program director and like we, we do a lot of deliberate programming to create situations where people can engage. So the it's sort of twofold, like the first component would be interreligious dialogue, which is kind of the most traditional thing you think of when you think of interfaith, or at least if you've been exposed to it in some capacity, is kind of like bringing people from different faiths together to learn about each other's beliefs and kind of debunk, you know, myths or misinformation that people have, like people have different stereotypes about religion. You know, there's a lot of religious xenophobia that we don't often even talk about when we think about things like implicit bias. But so, but yet we just had a Muslim ban, right? right, right. <laughs> so like, it's, it's something that's very like prevalent. So there's the the component of like just dialogue and education, but then there's also the second component of like uni- unifying people around like common moral, social, and ethical concerns or like through acts of service. So we might organize like an interfaith community project. Like one of the ones we did before the pandemic was, you know, an interfaith, taking an interfaith group to participate in a house build for Habitat for Humanity. Sure, yeah. So, and then, you know, or taking issues like climate change or the refugee crisis or poverty, Mm -hmm. hunger, racism, and bringing, you know, almost every faith community cares about these things and often has these, you know, initiatives built into their very infrastructure to address those things. So bringing all those people together and uniting them around something they all care about is another way for people to like engage in a 
in a, a situation that they may not normally have been in and kind of understand that, yeah, we have a very different worldview, but ultimately it's pointing us towards the same common, you know, beliefs for how our society should be. Right. And like working towards bu- building a more just and equitable society. And I think a lot of, you know, whatever your worldview is, whether it's religious or spiritual or even non-religious, I think still points to the same thing. Like even humanism, you know, like secular humanism, that's, we're still, we're still trying to be better people, right? Right, right. So. Just trying to do something for the better good and help your fellow man and actually do good things right. rather than stereotypes. Because you even have stereotypes within religious faiths because there's different secular, not secular, different sections, different reiterations of the same overall arching Right. Belief. There's tons of different denominations and there are... Yeah, there are definitely denominations that stereotype other denominations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or like, I mean, a lot of Protestants don't think that Catholics are real Christians, right? right, right. For example, <clears throat> I mean, you know, I was raised Catholic, so it's yeah, and and that's why interfaith actually kind of started as an ecumenical movement, which was actually just trying to convince people within Christian denominations to get along. <laughs> so, are you serious? Mm-hmm. So, like, over t- it the. A lot of the earlier movements were just like interdenominational. So, and then eventually we got to a point where we we're like, well, let's let's do Christian Jewish dialogue, yeah, yeah, yeah. let's do Christian Jewish Muslim dialogue, and then eventually we expanded beyond monotheism and was like, okay, well, let's dialogue with everyone, right? So, yeah, because if the Christians can all get along, <laughs> then everybody can get along. Is that well, right? I mean, we're living in like a very, you know, I mean, America has a history of Protestant heritage, right? You know, it was founded in that. And there was a lot of religious discrimination and there's a lot of religious discrimination embedded in our history. I mean, there was a time where you couldn't be Catholic and be president and be Jewish. Like, I mean, even now it's still a little taboo, right? To think about having a president who's not Christian Protestant, which shouldn't be the case. No, no, there should be no norm for what we have religious freedom, right? That's, that's crazy. Okay. You can, if you can get the Christians to be happy, because you still even have, Irish Catholics versus Irish Protestants, Bushmills and, and Jameson, if you look at the biggest overall arcing, to put it in the world, what is the... Jesus. Just the common thread is the fact that you have these different religious beliefs that also go into the zeitgeist of the whole world, right? So Bushmills and, and Jameson being a good example of that when it comes to liquor, where one of them is definitely Protestant, one of them not so much. <laughs> So I I just think that's interesting. You have done that since you were in college is when you started going into your religious studies. And then you also had music around the same time because you've been doing that for ever, right? Since you were a teenager at least, right? Uh, Yes. Well, I I guess since... I, my first band was my freshman year. Yeah, I was okay. like 14. My first serious band, like Lividity, I was 15 at that point. Actually, when I started college, I started college in Las Vegas, but I originally went to Las Vegas for music. For music, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I started on a, I was on an independent record label as a pop artist. And then once that all fell apart, I ended up, <laughs> as it does, over and over throughout <laughs> yeah. my history. Yeah, yeah stay in school. The then I went back and joined as a went back and auditioned to be the drummer for an all girl band called the Dirty Panties, which is on a they were on a independent label called Squid Hat Records. Okay, so I kind of like went into something already established when I went back, and that was in 2013. Nice. All right, and then you got started as a, a teenager. 
What got you into music? Was it just all your friends that are around you? No, I think I always, I mean, I was writing songs, you know, since I was like probably in like second grade, like complete songs. Like I have notebooks that are probably still at my mother's house of like, I would look at, you know how like the CD booklets used to have like the lyrics inside them, right? Or like the cassettes had them. So I knew like, okay, it's verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus. Like that was the structure. So you were looking at the actual book. Right. So I was actually like writing structured like lyrics out, but I couldn't play any instruments. So I would record myself acapella on cassette tapes, (laughs) like singing the melodies when I was like eight. And like, so like, it was just something that was always like really innate. And then sure, yeah. once I eventually learned, you know, to I started playing drums when I was 12. So, okay. and then sh- guitar when I was around like 15. So that eventually that it just, it has like a natural progression. But like I always, I, I felt like I knew what I was supposed to do since the moment I could figure out, you know, that that was a, a, an objective for my life. Yeah, yeah. So when it didn't work out, that was like, a reality check <laughs> was like, well, you were so sure of yourself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, feels good, huh? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. That's, you can relate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Multiple times, yeah. I was uh, like, what do I do now? <laughs> right. Like, I'm a failure. <laughs> <laughs> and it's funny because the way that people measure success is different. So there's so many people that, like, come to me and are like, I wish I could have done what you did and, like, really gone balls to the wall and like put up poured everything into this and like you were so successful and I was like no I wasn't (laughs) I'm like what just because I look that way on social media (laughs) right 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 right. yeah because you can make a whole right person on there you can I'm like you know you can you know you can buy likes right (laughs) (laughs) secret review Well, let me let's talk about a little bit of the music then, because that kind of coalesces into your kind of journey into your religious studies too. So, when you started with music, you're down in Southern Maryland, yep. right? And then you started going up more to Baltimore. Is that right? Yeah. So I obviously grew up in, and you know had had like my band in high school and stuff like that then once i i think when i turned 18 actually i went and auditioned for odd girl out okay. in baltimore so that was sort of how i got into that community i had auditioned on rhythm guitar and got in and i was with them for i mean gosh probably what five six years something like that like wow it's a pretty long yeah. stretch that we were and that was your third band maybe third or fourth yeah, probably like the, the third. I th- That's crazy. Okay, because yeah. th- usually when you're a little bit younger, those don't last very long. Right. Well, I was the youngest person in yeah. the band. Right. right. So they were older than me and more like established. They had a strong following. Like I sort of just fell into this really amazing opportunity. And then that just changed everything. Like, I mean, what I knew was like so small time compared to right. the things that we were doing. And like, you know, I went from playing the Hollywood Teen Center to like Ram's Head. And it's like, what? <laughs> what happened? Right? Yeah, that's yeah a like bigger. played yeah. 930 Club, played like, I mean, was playing Pride Festivals. I mean, it was it, it was a huge jump for me. And also it was, you know, one of those situations where I felt we were playing with a lot of bands that had been very successful and and I felt like we were always next in line but like never quite there so 
it was an amazing opportunity. We actually did a reunion show before I left for Vegas in 2013. And that was that was really fun. And I don't know, maybe we'll do another reunion show in 10 years, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, the nostalgia. When we're all 45. Right, we're like, yeah. <laughs> Nostalgia is a, is a big thing now, yeah. so that could definitely come back to play, especially if you're able to build it up a little bit. But well, yeah, it was definitely the nostalgia was real even then. I mean, we we sold out the auto bar, so yeah. it was like people were really ex- so. Yeah, who knows? Maybe, maybe. Yeah. So you were there for about four or five years or or so. Now did that band break up or did you just leave? So I quit, but because of like some inner relationship conflicts mm-hmm. which have since been resolved i love them all now well you um, did a reunion show so yeah right so, yeah. like so you have to <laughs> you know and i mean i was an asshole back then so let's be real so i'm still one so right okay. <laughs> like i can fully admit that i was an asshole in my early 20s like <laughs> like i'm not giving it a try to defend myself or my behaviors in any way <laughs> so i ended up leaving but then they sort of dismantled in a sense okay. like they they, I think they were playing Pride shows once a year or something like that, but they weren't like continuing regularly like, as a, they were before. Right, they weren't like, a working band. And everybody else, and everyone else, and start kind of like joined different projects, and I did okay. too. So, okay, is that when you started your own solo? Just about that time. So that's when I actually started Kitten on Capitol Hill. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. okay, yeah, yeah. I remember you playing the square. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. that's funny. Okay. So that's you know what's you- funny about that is that show that you're mentioning, we're still like the cover photo on the PJMA page. Really? Isn't, isn't that funny? Yeah, that's go, so you could like look it up right now. I actually just looked up the other I was living their page the other day for something and I sent I I was like, that's my face. <laughs> that I don't know how I'd feel about that. <laughs> Especially for it being so old, but that tells you kind of the the importance of trying to keep up your online presence too i feel mm-hmm. you're that's what eight years ago <laughs> right like right right yeah so now i don't I, know i mean maybe we were the most little person maybe like, actually the, probably the square yeah. was like yeah the most famous uh person that they got for uh park rock was aaron carter so and that. did he even show up because i i think he did once right <laughs> i think he did once and then they kept trying to get him back and i mean he, aaron carter's a mess so yeah i don't yeah, know yeah, if that's yeah. like <laughs> He, I don't remember. I follow his Instagram because it's hilarious. Is it? Yeah, you should follow it. It, It's so crazy. From what (laughs) I remember, he talked shit on the entire festival on his Instagram. Like he went off on his Instagram somehow. About the festival? About the festival and saying that everything was like a joke or something. But that was like his second year. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. So you're like, why'd you come back? (laughs) Right. Right. Or why would you agree to come back mm-hmm. if you thought all of this? So I, the flip side of that is I don't know if anybody showed up. So there's another part of it. But so it was probably just like this is a joke because nobody. No came one to see came. Me. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. I think that's probably what what it is. And then just it's Aaron Carter. So I don't know anybody that's actually actively listening to him. I mean, I had a crush on Aaron Carter when I was like you know ten or. I forgot he was a thing. Right. I, th- I forgot he was alive. You hear you hear about Nick every once in a while because everybody always teases their comeback, right? But yeah, well, they actually had a residency in Vegas, so they're legitimately really? like doing things. Yeah, when I, yeah, like when I was when I left, I think they had a residency. Didn't yeah. Britney Spears too? Oh, I saw her show. <laughs> <laughs> she did. I was in the last fucking row, but I was there. <laughs> That's hilarious. Oh, uh, it was so good. <laughs> 
is that so that pop music is that what you kind of want to make or is that like the theatric of it that you want well i mean like i so like i grew up listening to britney spears and like listening to pop music spice girls you know stuff like that and then when i got into high school that's when i really got into like you know, I start. I found like Hole, and I got like super into Courtney Love, and was right. like, "Oh, girls can play guitar. Like, cool. I'm gonna do that." Like, <laughs> so that was like the first time I really saw women taking like a role in like this more like aggressive genre, and I thought it was badass. And I got into like Sleater Kinney and like Bikini Hill and like the Riot Girl music, and like I got into punk. So there was sort of a like a you know a natural transgression from like going in from pop to like getting more into like heavier music. Yeah. So like I would say that it's both part of me. Like I can create both and it's equally me and okay. I am equally like I think when I initially went into doing pop my like I said I had a a very business mind. Like I was like I want to create a product that is going to be accepted in the mainstream. And so like what am I going to do? I'm going to create what's popular, right? So I'm going to create pop. And right. because it's going to be harder for me to break through if I'm doing punk or something like this. That's more of like this sort of subculture or like niche genre. So the pop thing just seemed like an obvious move. next move if my goal was to like get signed, to right? Break. Right, yeah. to like break into like a bigger market. And so – Everything I did was like very strategic and even how I presented myself, you know, because this was when I, when I made the pop record that was in 2012. And that was Evolution or something? Evolution, yeah. Yeah, all right. <laughs> right, like I wasn't, I wasn't arrogant at all. Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you have to lean into the yeah. whole pop mentality, right? Like it is all about you. Right. I don't know if you know this, but it is all about you. <laughs> Right. So I definitely did play into that, but I also tried to, I also like tried to not be like unauthentic in in right. the sense that like even when I made the like but in twenty twelve, like culturally things were very different. Like I mean you couldn't be I would say so, yeah. Yeah, like <laughs> you could like you couldn't be like openly gay and be a pop star like that wasn't something you saw really like you, yeah you know it was a very different world than we live in now so like even when i created which like which is crazy because it's only eight years right there, there's so much that mm-hmm. has happened in eight years that's insane yeah right and i think that's that's like a big difference too in like what i'm doing now because I, I never felt like i wasn't being authentic but at the same time i was being like subtle like the if the shoe fits video i was like i don't want to be in the narrative with a man because that's not true to who I am and it's not even true to who the song's about. (laughs) Right. But then at the same time, I didn't think the world was ready like for, you know, a lesbian narrative in this pop song. And I was really trying to like break through. So I just, I I was sort of the narrator of the story rather than being in the story. So things are just like really different. So everything, like pretty much everything I did was like, this is, I want to create a product that's marketable, that is going to be accessible to everyone that's not going to like put me in sort of this like sub genre, you know, because mm-hmm. with Agra Out, like we were an openly lesbian man. So we were already like in that market, you know, and then everything I did from then, even Kitten on Capitol Hill, I felt I was trying to be, appeal to a broader audience, I guess, if that makes sense, which at the time meant, <laughs> you know, you couldn't, 
you had to kind of play into this male gaze in a sense. Right, because it was a, a female-fronted punk band, if I remember right. Yeah. For the most part, punk, rock yeah, and roll, like, like, whatever. Like pop punk, grunge, yeah. kind of, yeah, like some sort of hybrid of... Okay, so that that's interesting then. So if you had that experience with Odd Girl Out and then had that kind of idea in Kitten on Capitol Hill, so you really had to actually, with your pop record, figure out what your what your image is going to be. Right. Right? That's the overall where you want to keep things subdued but still make your mark as much as possible, right? right. And part of that is subduing some of your stuff that you don't want out in the open quite yet because you don't feel like it's going to be accepted as much, right? right. Which is interesting because you're going from what I would think, and this is just me kind of outside in, would be a safer space for you to feel more like yourself with Odd Girl Out, right? <laughs> right, yeah, absolutely. And then that whole scene in Baltimore, the pride festivals mm-hmm. that you were talking about. So I would feel, just from what you're talking about, that mm-hmm. you would feel more safe in that space, but now you're trying to get more exposure so now you have to make yourself uncomfortable again <laughs> right and and not talk about the things that make you right yeah i mean well that's that's just that's the life of like you know right being like a, a person who doesn't subscribe to like a heteronormative you know like societal like you know you're 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 engaging in society differently all the time but it wasn't that I felt unsafe. Like, I mean, I still played some Pride. I did play Pride Festival as with my pop music and everything. It was just that I wasn't making it the, like, the forefront of everything I was doing. And also the fact that, I mean, we live in, like, a culture that, I mean, like, there's, like, feminine visibility. So because I present a certain way in the world, if I'm in a, like, a, a hetero space, I'm assumed to be straight. Like nobody looks at me and thinks, "Oh, she's a dyke." Right? Like, <laughs> like, like nobody's like I'm not presenting in a way that like makes me stand out in any way, and that's a privilege in and of itself. And right. and that comes from right. me feeling empowered in my own gender that was subscribed to me at birth, and that you know, and I've always felt very comfortable in my femininity. But then at the same time, when you're in queer spaces, like you also don't, you know, I've been told that. I'm straight out of gay bar, <laughs> right? So, so like you, so then sometimes you have to be over visible in those spaces yeah, so that yeah. people, so, so it's almost like you're all like, I'm always doing this like juggling act in a sense. So you're a chameleon. You're, you're right. trying to blend in with whatever is around you, which still trying to be true to yourself, which is what you were saying with the pop record is that you want to be able to, get out there, but still be authentic. And it's kind of difficult going in between these different scenes. Right. Just because we we do live in a world that's very cut and dry. Like, yeah. like people, yeah. it, but the reality is almost everyone lives in a gray area. And like you, so it's, it's just, and the expectations of people and of artists change over time. I mean, there was a time where it like was taboo for women to even be doing rock and roll. Right. And right. like, and women are still like, I can't tell you how many times that I like have played shows and like been like patronized by the like the organizers and the security and whatever as if I was just someone's girlfriend. There was one show in particular that I will never forget because I was so infuriated. (laughs) And me, I, myself and my bass player at the time was a female. We had our gear and we go to like the load in door and I was like, 
I'm, I'm trying to load in, right? Like I'm in the band. And they were like, this is for bands only. And I was like, yeah, like I'm, I'm in the band. Like this is my stuff, <laughs> right? And they're like, yeah, no, nice. like this is for bands only. And like yeah. they were not convinced. I was, he, he refused to believe that a woman could be in a band. So my bass player and myself, all the guys went in that door. No problem. My bass player and myself had to walk around the building in the rain. It started raining with our gear. <laughs> With our amps, everything, Jeez. and go in the front door and carry our stuff like in. a peasant, right, right, and wow. then and then I get on stage, and the the bouncer has the audacity to come up to me and be like, "Oh man, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were in the band," and I was like, "Really, dog? I just told you, right? Like I, I told you that I was. I was like, what are you sorry for being like a misogynist piece of shit? <laughs> and I said that to him, and he was oh, like, no. you don't have to be a bitch about it.' And I was like, yes. Yes, sir, I do. Like, you just made me walk right. in the rain. Do you not understand what just happened right. to me? Like, yeah, like just and just and a complete lack of like. He was just like, "Oh my bad," as if like I should understand that I'm in this role I shouldn't be in in some capacity. So I think that like you're you're constantly facing that as a female, and then when you add like, "Oh, well, hey, I like girls too." <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Like it just makes it even more like difficult and complicated to even right. exist in this this space that in this industry that people already think like you don't have a place in, right? So, and luckily like that's changing and but at the time like that was that was the world like Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's crazy how much in 10 years things can shift, but they have immensely like I mean, and now we're kind of back, we're backsliding, honestly. <laughs> yeah. As I'm talking, I'm like reminiscing. Right, <laughs> right. Oh, like, I'm yeah, like, oh, yeah. wait, the Supreme Court just said that same-sex marriage was unconstitutional. So. <laughs> I saw that. And I, I, oh, man. that They didn't even give her time to just be in the ground for a little bit before they just go in on everything. Right, because they're trying to push forth this agenda and that was her dying wish for this not to happen <laughs> well that's good that's, that's <laughs> right. good yeah oh man okay so that's i think that's interesting that you are conscious of it the whole time right now when you're with odd girl out and that in that scene was that just you feeling i'm trying to think of, of the best way to to say this because it like I said, it sounds like you went from being in a safer spot and then feeling all that stuff from the world, just like that bouncer, right? Right. Saying, oh, yeah, it doesn't matter what area I'm in, shit is going to happen to me. And then on top of that, it could happen where I'm safe or where I'm trying to make a bigger mark and I already know the mentality of everybody that's around me. So then you're more slightly more prepared for it. I don't know. It sucks that it's a foreign concept to me for a little bit, right? Right. I've never experienced that because I'm dumb and white. That's how this <laughs> how this works. The the flip side to that, like what you were talking about also with everybody lives in that gray area, is that you have so much of these niche interests, these niche scenes, these niche everything coming into the forefront because of technology. Right. Because there's such a bigger part in technology that you can actually embrace your person, like your your mm -hmm. authentic self, because people can lift weights and also be a huge nerd. Right. Like they, they can like girls and play music. Who knew that was a <laughs> I thing? I know, it's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Who knew women and music was a thing, even though it's been like that forever? Right. Yeah, so that's 
I think that's interesting. And then the fact that you took that with your pop record and knew that image had to be kind of straddling between two things, because it sounds like you've almost been straddling for 15 years, 20 years, (laughs) however long it's been, right? Right. Because then you're going through everything. So I think that's, that's cool that you had that business aspect of it, but you also had to see what that was as far as on a personal level and what you're willing to give up. Right. Or at least put on the back burner. Is that a good way to describe it? Yeah. I mean, I think you, well, I think that you have to, as a, you know, as a woman, as a queer person, like you have to learn how to navigate the world differently, like, because you know you're going to be perceived differently. So you learn, you know, what risks you can take. And, and I, I mean, you just have, you, your life is a balancing act all the time. So of course I'm going to approach, like, if I'm like, this is my life, this is what I want to be doing. This is my passion. Like I'm going to be, you know, analytical and thinking like, how, how can I be the most effective and still be true to who I am? Right. And so that was sort of the, you know, that was the balancing act that I played. I mean, and I mean, I don't, I'm not doing that now, obviously, but like, (laughs) but I don't, like, I I definitely understand. And like, maybe if I did it over, I would do it differently. I don't know. But I was so like one-sided in this, like, this is what I want to be doing that I knew I had to play into the industry. And at that time, I mean, we were moving towards, you know, like technology kind of taking over in the music world, but we weren't really there yet in a lot of ways, like major labels still largely dictated like what we listened to, who we heard on the radio was still a thing. Right. Right. Now, like the radio is pretty much obsolete at this yeah, point. Right. Yeah, Cause you have all the streaming. And then on top of that, you have all the built the SoundCloud. Right. Right. Being able Bandcamp is another right. big thing. So being we able had, to get all that stuff I mean, out, we yeah. had like SoundCloud and stuff, but we didn't, it didn't have like the presence it does or like the importance yeah. that it does now, I guess is what I'm trying to convey. So like radio was still super important, mm-hmm. you know, playing live was super important, you know, and, and obviously that still is, but well, now that we're in a pandemic, like, <laughs> you know, who knows how that, I mean, that's already, we're already changing even what we, we, th- how we think about like playing yeah. live at this yeah. point. But, but I think Anna, for the most part, we hadn't fully made this transition from like everything's accessible all the time and you have complete autonomy over what you want to listen to. And there's a lot more opportunities for artists to kind of make themselves. Whereas like back then it was like somebody had to like think, see something in you and bring you to that next level. Like you had to like, you know, catch the eye of the right, you know, label or producer or, you know, whatever. So it was still this like game of like constantly, throwing yourself into impressing someone else, right? Instead of just like, whereas now I think you can, you know, if you've got like enough time and energy and money and you you could make an internet presence for yourself that could equate to like- What a label would do for you. Right, exactly. So I think think that that's different too. So it's just like, we're just, it's a different world. You know what I mean? (laughs) Well, I I think- the one of the things that you said with that gray area that it's such more it's a much more prevalent now because all those niches that were hidden mm-hmm. can come to the forefront and then on top of that you can be whoever you want to be make nerdcore <laughs> right bit music whatever and still right. have millions of followers right. because of everything that's in there is that because your audience is like the world exactly. region your local yeah. you know your local area you're not 
kissing the asses of like right. you know you're not having to conform as much and, yeah yeah, yeah. Like, it's yeah it's it's a lot it's a lot different i i don't know i think i think it's good in a lot of ways for sure that we can put ourselves out there and not have to just like be a little more autonomous in what deciding what we want to listen to and how but it was interesting when i went to vegas because punk was actually like the predominant genre on the scene like that was if you weren't on the strip and like in a cover band or something Mm -hmm. like the local scene punk was it and that was what i wanted to be doing so it was like perfect because (laughs) you know like we there was a punk bar that it didn't matter what it was like seven days a week always had bands and it didn't matter when you went in there were people in there you didn't have to pull teeth to get people in like the way you do in baltimore like you don't have to sell tickets they always paid the bands and there was always people in the bar and it was and and there was just a culture of like i I don't there's a punk culture that i'd never seen anywhere else it was really cool so that was so you were actually able to take this more niche genre and and you you could be successful there because that was what people were looking for. Right. So, so that was like a big shift, I think, for me. And that was a lot. Of, that was a really fun period of my life, being able to to do that and like not have all these like external pressures of trying to obtain some like hypothetical goal of success to just be able to play and have fun. And there was always people there and, you know, yeah. and we were already on a label and it, it was it was a cool time. And I got to play like punk rock bowling festival and like right. open for like the descendants and Millencolin and like all the good ones. Right. right? Yeah. I like, I literally stood on stage and, and like Jello Biafro is like uh, right, right yeah. there. Just make me feel and better. We're about like my life. watching the descendants yeah. together. I mean, it's, cr- it was crazy. So that was like, you know, and that was when I joined the negative Nancy's. So I, I mean, definitely like, even in that sense, it was like, Oh, well in terms of like measurable success, like, you know, did pretty well in terms of like the punk world. Sure, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So, so that, you know, so it really, you know, it's almost like depends like regionally where you are too. Like, in yeah. Other ways. Which is, is funny because you still, we think that everything is so connected mm-hmm. all the time, but you can see just in everything in the world is that everybody is still fairly disjointed with the way that they like you go to midwest and it's a completely different experience than it is on the east coast if you go to the boston it's completely different from vegas the whole nine in there right so for you you had your pop record and there was a lot of stress on you that you put on yourself to try and succeed and then you go to vegas and you're like oh shit music is fun again (laughs) right this is amazing exactly it and that was like well, so I, so, great. Great. so I like quit the pop. I, I just, I just quit doing the pop music yeah. after my New York tour. And that was cause like the, the band started to kind of like fall apart. The, we, we lost the members, whatever. And then like, I don't know, it was just like something like I just gave up. Like I just felt like, I don't know, like there was a, a period of a couple months where I felt like a failure and like was like, what am I going to do with my life and this and the other. And then eventually, like I started to reevaluate how I can look at at art. Like, I, I don't know. I felt like I was no longer creating art just for the sake of creating art. Like I was creating art with like an aim or a goal. With a purpose to yeah, make money. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And like when you do that, you lose something. Yeah. You know? And so I was like, well, how do I get back to how I felt in high school? Right? Like when I was 
just so passionate and just like moved by music, you know, and and just just compelled to to want to put something out there, not for myself, but for you know just just because, just right. like art for the sake of art, right? And there's, I remember reading a book called uh, Zen and the Art of Archery, where they talk about like the the sure you try to hit the target, the sure you are to miss, like it, that that archery like art should be aimless and the second that you are not aimless you you you're you're lost like you're and and I know and it really resonated okay. with me cuz like I always felt like I was running on a treadmill trying to get somewhere I could never get right. to so I was like that's exactly what I'm doing so I was like well how do I go back to like being aimless in the work that I create and yeah, um, living in the moment right. way more yeah Right, instead of like always like aiming for this like future projection or like right. expectation of myself, and like so that was when I was like, well, what you know, how do I get back to that? And I really felt like well, I'm gonna go play drums for this all girl punk band in Los Angeles. Like that seems like, and it works, right? Like it really, I I really finally started having fun again and just like being part of something that was just for the sake of doing it rather yeah. than like, you know, wanting to to be famous or wanting to like have, you know, some measurable level, level of success. Right. And then who who really measures success, right? Right. That you brought that up earlier. Who everybody's level of success is completely different. Right. And everybody's view of success is completely different. Because what you said, <laughs> you can have a hell of an internet presence but still have five dollars to your name yeah for sure and i there are a lot of people i know who look at what i've done and measure that as success but for me it was never right you know it's never enough so were you working too or were you just trying to use music as your means for living oh yeah i was working but i was use my work as a means to like afford my hobby. <laughs> sure, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, like, because I wasn't, I definitely, there was one point I sold my car to pay off a recording debt. Like, <laughs> I literally, like, I mean, I was funneling every last dime I had into, into this. music. Yeah, and, like, always and, coming up short. Like, and this was mostly into your pop record? I mean, or into everything. Into everything, okay. <laughs> Yeah, like, into everything, pretty much. I mean, it definitely with the pop record, it went, further like that yeah. the because it was not i started like well i couldn't find you know it's really hard to find musicians like willing to tour and so i was like well i'm just gonna have like three different backing bands and i'm just gonna move myself all over the country which is a good idea in theory right, <laughs> right. it's a good idea in theory and even at that time too i don't think backing tracks were really that big as kind of they are now right oh gosh and yeah they weren't in a lot of like a lot of like sound engineers yeah venues like had no idea how to work with it so it was also really hit or miss because some if you they fucked up the track and you got off time like there was no recovering from that like there were times i would just have to turn it off because people weren't prepared for it like now it's like i see it everywhere and i laugh because i'm like this was such a pain in the ass for me (laughs) like and when it was good it was awesome like you were in the pocket but when it was bad it was you know a train wreck (laughs) yeah one one of my buddies one of the guys that interviewed earlier derek he plays in lions and chain of islands he was talking about how he had the backing track and then it was off for just a second. He's a drummer and it threw him completely mm-hmm. off. And he had to just turn it off 
midway through the song and yeah. then go back into it. And then hopefully the next song, it was fine. And yeah. it was just insane that the amount of technology that has progressed, the fact that you can do that just from a laptop now, and just the whole thing, like you think about six years ago, seven years ago, it really just wasn't prevalent. And people are trying to still like now get it to where it's perfected, even right. though it'll... It's technology. It'll never be perfect. <laughs> right. It'll always screw you in some different way. Right. Well, and there was some tech that would have made it easier, like like in your monitors were a thing at that time. But all that stuff was so out of like our budget oh, yeah. of accessibility. Like things were not. You know, I was like, I have the tracks on MP3 player, <laughs> <laughs> and I need you to run them through the PA and through the monitor. And like, I don't understand why this is so complicated because I can do it at band practice <laughs> and. Uh, yeah, but it's a little bit of a different setup. I feel. Yeah, yeah. 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 It's not just a PA going for vocals; it is everything else. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. funny. Oh, yes. Okay. You rekindle a little bit in Las Vegas, right? That's also where you started going to school too. Yeah. Okay. So I think that's interesting. So you and I'll probably say that's interesting a lot. So we're in Las Vegas. You were working a little bit, playing in the band, and then. Where did this idea of going to school for religious studies come? <laughs> well, I was, when I got to Vegas, so I, well, I used to work at Pizza Hut. I'll yeah. throw that out there. Like, oh, I remember yeah, that. you remember that, yeah. I remember that. Holy right. shit, okay. So, like, I worked for the Pizza Hut here as a livery driver. And, like, when I moved to Vegas, well, when I moved back to Vegas, I should say, like, I was friends with the, one of the, the like, our, the general managers at one sure. of the, the Pizza Huts. So she hired me back. Well, then there was, like, this whole thing where they actually were trying to, like, push her out of her position. And, of course, you know, me, I'm, like, the loyal employee, like, well, no, fuck that. Like, you're not going <laughs> to treat my friend. Like, like it was, it was pretty fucked up. Like, I actually got locked out of the inventory. Like, they went in what? and changed the numbers, like, to make it look like she was, like, you know, stealing, losing product or what have you. So, I, yeah, I was, I mean, I was even, like. That's a whole ass conspiracy. Yeah, like, no, and it happened. I And I was on, like, her unemployment claim and stuff. So, it was a whole big ordeal. But I felt like I needed to quit in solidarity. You yeah. Know, yeah. Like, that, that's me. And I was just. It's like, no, you're not going to treat people like this. Like, who the fuck are you? So I quit. And then I had a really hard time, like, finding another job, you know, which which had never happened to me here. Like, it was, all, you know, I had a really strong, like, administrative background. I could always find something, some kind of work. But I, it was, like, several months. And so, and then when I finally did find a job, it was, like, it was shit. It was the worst job ever. Like, I was working <laughs> in real estate, but, like, the pay was terrible. And so eventually I was, like, well... Maybe I'll just like go get my associates and okay. that way like I could go for like a higher paying like administrative job or something like that. So I actually got my associates in philosophy because I was how, like How old were you? How old was I? I was I think it was 2014. So what? 20 Oh no. So bad at math. <laughs> What year is this? <laughs> it's 2020. Right, right. So, so six, six years, years ago, ago. So I'm 33 now. Yeah. So about 26, 27. Yeah. Okay. Right? So which is, I think it's fantastic because mm -hmm. that means that it's never too late to start anything. Oh, absolutely not. Like you almost restarted your whole life. I did. Yeah. yeah. So and and I didn't know I was at the time really. Like I just felt like 
this was a logical step. And and I was like, well, what can I tolerate to take classes in and not be bored? Philosophy, right? I always loved reading philosophy. So actually the shift to religion, like, I mean, part of that came out of the relationship that I was in at the time. So when I actually ended up dating the drummer I replaced in the Dirty oh, Panties. Wow. <laughs> and whoo, she hit me like a train. Like I was like, I'm going to marry this girl. Like I was, I had it bad. Yeah, absolutely. But she, you know, she was actually a, she went to a, like a kind of an evangelical Christian church. Okay. So there was some like conflict about inner conflict about. A whole lot of conflict. Yeah. About being being with a woman. Yeah, Yeah. And so that, and that actually is what caused us to break up. Was sure was, was this? It wasn't anything in a relationship, but rather this like conflict within her, her this doctrine be- yeah. between her beliefs and between you know our how she was living her life, and you know, and I I'm not saying that I would never I don't want to bash her or anything sure. like that. Like this is that's not my my intention in telling this story. Like I I still love and care about her very much. It's and and I respect her decision, but it's it's just that that really so like I was raised Catholic and. When I was, you know, 12, roughly, I think it was in like seventh grade, I had a religion teacher who I remember very plainly was like, homosexuality is wrong. Like, I have a friend. He knows he's gay. He lives his life alone and celibate because it's, you're not supposed to do this. And I didn't know I was gay when I was 12. Like, I had, sure. no, yeah. I had a boyfriend. He was I had no idea. <laughs> and I just remember like he sitting there, <laughs> I absorbed this information. And then I was like, nah. I don't think that's true. <laughs> like, like I mean, just as plain as day. Like, I remember like taking it in and then being like, "Nah, nah." Like, that's your opinion. Like, I remember just being like, "The God that I believe in is loving and compassionate. I would never want this man to live his life alone, yeah, and die alone because of the way." Because she didn't say God that he wasn't created this way. She didn't say he was making a choice. She uh-huh. actually said the latter. She said. He knew that this was just part of who he was and that it was wrong. And so I'm like, if you believe in a in a God that is perfect, a perfect being that creates perfect beings, how this has God be part of it, yeah. God doesn't make mistakes, right? So that for me, it was very obvious that this was something she was interjecting in like her a human belief that was being projected. Like, and I didn't know any of the the Bible verses that people used just at that time. Like, you know, as I progressed through biblical scholarship, obviously I got into that. But for me, it was always just like, no. Like, I never had that conflict. I don't know what it feels like. I can't, you know. So this was the first time I was really like coming face to face with that and being like, oh, like this is a real struggle that people go through. And I think that sparked some curiosity in me in what people believe and why in a lot of ways. And then that was also around the time that I had all of these like just crazy, you know, I was having like a very emotional response to this because I would think so. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's like, it's not anything I did. Like I can't fix it. Like there's this, this reason, this thing it's that's a fundamental thing yeah. that she would have to reckon with. At yeah. That point. yeah. So it's this thing that's like, standing in between our relationship that I have absolutely no power over. And that's like, so you feel very like helpless in that situation and you feel just, you, you don't know what to do. Like, and I, and I got angry and I was very angry at religion. I was angry. Like I actually, so I started getting involved with like atheist communities and like 
you know, I actually pay- played a show at Pendulette's mansion wow. in Las Vegas. Jesus Christ. Okay. With <laughs> cuz for that was like the the Church of Bacon was trying to yeah. buy it and turn yeah. it into a community center. I was part of the fundraiser. Like I played a show. I was playing in the band for Sunday Assembly, which is a, it's a secular church, right? So they they the premise is like, well, let's take we know that people who belong to like communities have lower late lower rates of like suicide and depression and things like that. So like, let's take those like positive elements and like remove religion out of it and like create a space for people who don't have one. And so I thought it, it was- makes sense. It makes, so it's, it makes so much sense that no one's done it before because, <laughs> because they don't think they don't think right. they just, they're, they're in their zones. They're in their clicks. Mm-hmm. Right. But because religion is such a big part of that click, they don't think about the fact that, oh, yeah, you can have all this community and this fraternity. You can have uh, – what what is some of the uh, – fellowship right. without the without actual the fellow. Yeah. 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 So it was a really – I was, like, really impressed by the concept of that. And just, like, so I got involved. I started – I was in their band. And, like, so I was doing all these things, you know. And, and I – you know, but then at the same time, I, I had held for a very long time that I had a Buddhist worldview. Like, but I was, like – what an anthropologist would call like a bedside Buddhist, like <laughs> where you read a couple like Alan Watts books and you're yeah. like, yeah, I'm a Buddhist, but like you have no fucking idea what Buddhism really is. <laughs> and like you encounter like pretentious white people who feel this way all the time. When everybody, yeah. when people tell me they're Buddhist, I'm like, but are you? Like, did you but just, you? did you just read a couple books? So like that was me, like fully admit that. Like I was like, oh yeah, I subscribe to this worldview that I can't actually enact in my life because I have no practice and no, so like I can't actually like take any of these like principles and make them you know manifest in what I'm doing because I'm just reading about it and I'm conceptualizing it and Buddhism is largely about unlearning things not learning right (laughs) you can't understand it intellectually so because I was having such a hard time like dealing with my anger and all of my emotions in the situation I started going to the Zen Center of Las Vegas and I still belong to the sangha there and I'm in touch with my teacher regularly and I actually do their like communications work now and that changed my life like absolutely like I mean just have you know doing the meditation practice and like you know actually taking these like theoretical concepts and understanding like seeing them actually manifest in my behaviors that was like because I could say like you know so, like, a big principle in Buddhism is is that you don't, like, so, like, in the sense of, like, my breakup, right? Like, we broke up, but everything, and in that moment, obviously, like, I was caused pain by that occurrence, right? But the the prolonging of that for months, like, the anger I was holding on to, the resentment, the, you know, all of these emotions that I'm feeling, ultimately, I'm doing that to myself, like I can choose how I respond to this and what I whether I turn this into something positive or negative, right? So it's that sort of premise. But if you don't have any like discipline or practice behind that, that's just like a, an idea. It's like a nice story right. that I can tell myself that I can do, but I'm still responding. I'm watching my behaviors and like I'm responding the same way. I'm lashing out. I'm doing these things. So so that really like I I don't know. I feel like that opened me up so much more to like having compassion and understanding for other people and like what they believe and how my actions affect everyone else that that kind of when I started getting into philosophy it was like more and more I became interested in 
in religion. Like I, I kept leaning like because you can take religion courses when yeah. you when you're studying philosophy, and at the same time, like philosophy is very Western, right? And I here I am in this Eastern tradition, like Buddhism is. It comes from the East. Like I'm start getting in all these Eastern philosophers, like Jiddu Krishnamurti, and like you know. So I, I'm like really just digging what the East has going on. And, and, and philosophy you're is shaving like, your head or not. Right, yeah. right. And philosophy is like all in the West, you know, and we're studying misogynists like Aristotle. And, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm kind of like, well, I'm kind of sick of studying old white dudes, right? So I like get into UNLV and, you know, I start as a philosophy major and same old stuff, you know, Aristotle, Plato, Socrates, like it's the same the same like worldviews over and over and over again. And so religion that switching to religious studies kind of offered a way to like learn from people of other cultures, learning from people of color, learning from women, like just, just it, it, it created like a broader space yeah. for like different perspectives than West traditional Western philosophy does. Yeah. That makes sense. And you were talking earlier about the aimless arrow, which is, correlates directly with buddhism mm -hmm. which I, I don't know if you ever thought about that while you were learning a little bit more about buddhism is that little spark that you had with that aimless arrow is exactly what you would use to translate over to a philosophy a way of life that you could actually embrace but it's just part of that I, you're well, yeah. a logical person from everything that I, i'm hearing from you analytical and what you said buddhism is not really about that it's yeah. about hey just live like it's cool right. let it all go it's fine so I, I think that's interesting that you had that aimless arrow in there mm -hmm. right well and that was you know that was actually in a zen book yeah right? yeah Cause, like i said i was a bedside buddhist so i was you know and yeah like it definitely shook something in me without maybe really being like able to fully like grasp Be conscious the, of it yeah yeah yeah, yeah. I, th I think that's cool because then you go and you learn more about it and then you're just like, oh, yeah, I can actually put this stuff into practice. I can actually see it instead of just me being like like an aimless arrow. <laughs> well, like instead of being like that, now you have a little bit of that discipline and a little bit of that not really purpose, but just a way to live your life that's a little bit more structured and that you can also release at the mm -hmm. same time, too. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think that, well, you know, and I, I took the five uh, precepts um, with the Zen Center of Las Vegas back in, again, 2014. It was that same year, like within six months, I like made a commitment to, to practice. And, you know, I've been engaging in practice ever since. But I also have, through my studies, seen that this contemplative practice is present in almost every religion. It's it's one of the, the very things that sits at the core, but we've lost as a Western society. And that really changes how we engage in the world a lot. Because when the Christian church reformed, you know, and split from East, the Eastern Orthodox and the Roman Catholic church split, you know, we got farther away from that sort of like mystic, the contemplative, you know, practices. And then when the Protestant when Martin Luther reformed the Catholic Church, you're reforming the already reformed church. So then you're right. becoming even farther detached. So that's really how we see this shift from, you know, this more mystical type of Christianity to a very literal version of Christian, a more literal version of Christianity and Protestantism. And the, but we are seeing like a comeback of now of, you know, we have like people like Thomas Keating and Richard Rohr and like who've, and, and, you know, Thomas Merton, who have, like, 
people are now very interested in the writings of these of these people and the practices of like centering prayer, which I will go engage in centering prayer and tell you it's it's pretty much exactly the same as as like uh, zazen, like like engaging in like Buddhist meditation practice. And I think the more and more we see people going back to these contemplative roots, the better our society is going to be. Because I think in I think we have to transform individuals in a certain way. So the, it's it's just it's interesting that like it's almost like coming full circle because that was also something I didn't know existed in Catholicism. But here I am reading these like Catholic writers who are talking about the very thing I'm doing in an Eastern, through an Eastern lens, you know? Yeah, because if you look at it, you have a focus a little bit more on the individual with Eastern philosophy and religion, right? Mm -hmm. So you have that mentality of of the meditation, uh, of all that. And then when you go Western, prayer takes replace or replaces that Mm -hmm. and then you put it on someone else's plate rather than your own right and it's it's more about how we pray right like because i mean i feel like prayer can be meditation but when you you know rather than sitting and just receiving what is and like being present with you know, because I think like I think that the sacred is accessible to everyone at all times and that we all have access to that. And, you know, the like that's a very different experience, just being like willing to receive versus like asking for something or yeah. like projecting our wants and desires. And like because in, in Eastern practices, it's about letting those things go, like not attaching to your desires and, you know, because those things hinder your ability to be present at any given moment. And they just create this, you know, false ego that our capitalist society is like, yeah, yeah. you know, so so it's it's almost like living in a different world sometimes, right? Because of the way that, but I, I don't know. It, it, so it's it's really interesting, but, and I'm very interested in that like common thread, like historically and in, in a lot of different traditions. And I've, I've, done some study into that but so i like like i said religion just fascinates me because it's such a powerful tool in our world like you can't you literally can't separate it from society like it's so ingrained and are you finding too that a lot of the more contemporary and just like modern views of god itself is kind of what you talked about when you were 12 that loving god Mm -hmm. that he's perfect so all of his creations are perfect is that something that kind of thought is that more prevalent now because the acceptance is a little bit more there? Yeah, I think so. I think that I think that often the is the loudest voice in the room with being the like the, the consensus. Right. That's not the case. Like I actually think that just because we hear, okay, we hear all this media about like Westboro Baptist Church or something like that because it's so outlandish that we assume that every person who is engaged in evangelical Christianity has a worldview like that. That's not true. And I think that most mainline Christian Protestants are far more moderate and 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 often more progressive and left leaning than the the average. Like I think that the the people who are very who are super conservative and who are really trying to influence our political like sway our political decisions at this point, I actually feel that that's a minority group. But see, when you sit on the outside of it, 
you know, like say where I was after I came out of that relationship in 2013, like, or 2014 rather, I was, you know, I thought that was the norm. And that's not true. And I think, and so part of like what you're doing in Interfaith is like, okay, that in and of itself is a stereotype, right? I'm assuming every Christian I meet is is homophobic. Like, there's no basis for that, right? You know what I mean? So it, it's no, I can have a bias in that capacity just as much as I can have a bias toward, uh, towards Muslims and think that because of 9-11 that all Muslims are terrorists or something like that. Like, the, the, the biases that, you know, are within us, they, they don't, yes, maybe you think one is better than the other, but they're manifesting from the same right. place, you know, and I don't know if that makes sense, but... Yeah, yeah, it, it definitely makes sense because you're looking at it as, as far as everybody has innate biases, right? And it's really, we have biases based off of everything. Mm-hmm. Just you talking to me, and then as far as just a bias would be everything that we think about with Christianity, just all lumping into the fact that, oh, they all use smoke at the same church. They all have the hanging smoke that they do. That's just the Catholics. That's just the Catholics. (laughs) And then... The Episcopal. Whatever. Who's a pastor? Who's a father? Who's a padre? I don't know. I don't know who (laughs) is what. But there's so many denominations. There's so many factions. Everything's broken up that it's very difficult to lump all of them together. And then we even look at, like now, where you can build a whole political base based off the extreme loudness in there, where the people, like what you're talking about, that are the loudest are definitely still not the full voice. Right. They're the the ones that, they're the pinky toe that you hit on the corner <laughs> of your fucking nightstand, and then you just right. hurt for a while because they're the ones that are yelling at you. So I think it's very cool to have, and very important to have a, a center like that to where you can actually try to bridge the gap in there. And I think it's a cool um, story for you to see how that has really developed with your own self. And then also you found a place where you can actually make an impact. Because a lot of people might find a place for themselves, but they don't see a bigger ripple. Mm-hmm. So you don't make a bigger impact. While with you, you're actually trying to put some of the better stuff into practice and try to, to build a, a better community, right? Yeah, I mean, I think what really appealed to me about interfaith was that I felt it was sort of this all-encompassing social justice movement because when we talk about religion, we have to talk about everything else. Like we have every single person is like multifaceted. We have these like intersectional, these very complex intersectional identities. We don't just fit in like these nice, neat little boxes. So if I'm talking about, well, what does a Christian look like? There is no one way that a Christian person presents in the world and therefore their experiences are all going to be different. So we we concurrently have to, if we're going to talk about religion, we have to talk about race. We have to talk about gender. We have to talk about sexual orientation. We have to talk about, you know, cultural identities because all these things overlap. There's no, you know, so what what is is interesting is I think that I always knew that if I wasn't doing music, I wanted to do something that was going to make the world a little bit better in some way. But it was hard for me to pick 
right? Because I'm like, I care about so many things and I feel that all these issues are really intersectional. So coming into, I remember I went to the Parliament of the World Religions at in Salt Lake City, which is, this, you know, this global interfaith conference it, back in right when I was going into, like, I had just finished my associates, starting my bachelor's. And I walked into the room and like, just all the immense diversity, like, Every single kind of person in every single kind of identity was in that that room, like all collectively together. And they're like, let's all work together to feel to figure out how to end the climate change, you know, existential crisis that we have yeah, going yeah, on. Yeah. Like, and so it was like really moving because I felt like, well, here this is the intersection because we everybody has some sort of worldview that how the way that they engage in the world, and that might be religious, it might be spiritual, it might be secular. But if we can, you know, bring people together on that, like, through that lens, and say, we all care about the same things, you know, historically, if you look behind every, like, look at apartheid, or the civil rights movement, there are these interfaith undertones that exist, that we often overlook, you know, that Ibu Patel, who's the founder, he's like a, a pretty famous person in the inter, in the interfaith world. He founded an organization called Interfaith Youth Corps. He often talks about how he went to the Parliament of World Religions in South Africa, and Nelson Mandela was speaking. And Nelson Mandela said, I would still be in prison if it wasn't for the religious right. communities that organized around my release. And so that's a pretty powerful thing when we think about it. And when we think about Selma, we forget that Martin Luther King Jr., was a very deeply religious man who felt he was doing God's work and he was marching next to a rabbi, right? Right. That's and- what I was just about to bring up. Yeah, that's perfect. <laughs> so, so it's like there's, you know, I think what you were saying earlier about how we see these very conservative, hateful groups mobilizing towards political change. We can do the same thing on the other end of the spectrum. And you can do that by organizing faith communities because you already have – it's easier to mobilize bonded groups of people than individuals. So if I'm coming into this from an interfaith lens and I'm saying it's really important to me that we – you know, we have climate change, right? It's going to be – we're going to see far more rapid – change in policy and in society if we can get all these faith communities and spiritual communities to agree on working towards addressing this issue and then mobilizing these groups of people rather than trying to just change these the minds of every like siloed individual so it actually i mean for me it it makes sense like we cuz we talk you know the programming that we we do addresses everything on the spectrum in terms of, you know, like we have, we're not just trying to debunk like, you know, xenophobia towards religious groups. Like, yes, we're doing that, but we're also trying to mobilize people of faith and non-faith around things that they care about, around eradicating racism and hunger and poverty and, you know, ending the climate crisis. And, you know, so there's just a lot of like power in that. And I think that the, the, the far right has already They've already tapped into it. They've mobilized their groups. That's why we're in the the situation we are now. How do we do it on the other side? And we've done it before, you know, like I said, you know, those like like during the civil rights movement stuff. I think we need to get back 
back to that. And that's what I really see as like a big function of this work and why it's so important to me. Yeah, because you you look at it, like what you said, the extreme, the loudest group Mm -hmm. in there is evangelical Christians or fundamentalist Mm -hmm. Christians, whatever, evangelical. Yeah, one of those. Whatever the TV stations use for, for describing Trump's base. Right. Right. Those are the ones where we always look at it to where it's almost like that group versus the rest of humanity <laughs> when it comes to politics. Right. It, it's really interesting yeah. to see that because what you're talking about is literally... The rest of humanity. Yeah, the rest <laughs> of humanity. <laughs> it's literally like all the religious groups and the secular groups and the spiritual... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's that's a pretty daunting <laughs> task, but it doesn't seem like it should be daunting. It's just the fact that... Well, if this much power can be had from that small, small group, group yeah. if we could even mobilize a quarter of the rest of humanity, like, you know, that would be effective. And I think we've seen... I mean, it, it's been done and, like, we just need... To, and, and that's why it's kind of funny to me that, like, the, even the word interfaith, like, you know, when we started this conversation, like, is it a church, right? Like, like people don't even know what it is. And then I explain, when I explain it to people, they're just like, oh, well, that's, that seems obvious, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. seems like just like what everyone should be doing, right? Like, and, and, but, but a lot of people just don't even know about it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so. It's it like I said, it's just so logical and it makes <laughs> so much common sense. Right. That just nobody ever thought about about it before because people keep bickering between themselves, right? And then and often and people like I said are often single issue focused. So if I'm hyper focusing all of my energy into one thing, then I'm not going to see how it plays into this larger collective like. And not to say that you shouldn't do that. We need those people. Um, because they're really the ones like doing a lot of the groundwork when it comes to policy and everything. But, but I think we we can't be too siloed, right? Right. We, we can say like this is the most important issue to me, but I also have to see how it's connected to everything else. Like, for instance, we did a we did a program last semester that was about how climate change actually exasperates the refugee crisis. Yeah, of course. Because obviously, when you have when, you know, that climate can have an impact on migration and displace people. So people, so say I have a lot of churches, there are a lot of churches who focus heavily on just, just relocating refugees, right? If they don't see how climate's connected in some way, and also, I think also actually it was, it was a three-part intersection. It was also a connection with poverty as well, because it disproportionately affects vulnerable communities. So if I'm in a church and this one's focusing on refugees, this one's focusing on poverty, this one's focusing, focusing on climate, but I don't understand the intersection, how effective can I be, right? Because I'm always going to miss pieces of the problem, I guess. So Yeah, it's treating the symptoms mm-hmm. instead of the cause. Right. That's, ex- that's exactly what it is. So one of the things that I was, I was thinking about was that it's almost, you said the single issue people, right? Mm-hmm. And trying to get those to intersect. But it's almost like black and white versus gray, where you have, you're trying to change those black and whites, trying to change mm-hmm. those one issue people to look at the bigger picture. Right. While also still like making them feel validated, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. So I think that's an interesting thing that you have to kind of go through mm-hmm. and really try to open up 
other people's scopes Mm -hmm. because that's kind of what what everything that I'm, I'm getting at from you is that the whole idea of the interface center is to open your horizons a little bit and to actually listen to when people talk about their stuff. (laughs) Right. And I think when you can do that and you, you start to transform individuals, then that will broaden their scope ultimately. And and obviously everyone's going to have something that they probably, you know, care more about. Like I, obviously I, I, I care more about, you know, eradicating xenophobia towards religions because that's really where my focus areas are. But, you know, we can do that and also acknowledge that all these other things are important and that, right. and that they intersect. And, you know, I think that the the single issue thing is often created as well by like the polarization in our society. And we have these driving single issues that very heavily influence our, our, po- our politics. And often people will vote based on one thing, you know, and not really understanding the impact of everything else that vote represents. Yeah, because you you also look at bills that are are put out, because I I assume that you're kind of on the pulse of a lot of the the political stuff, too, because of the nature of your center. Yeah, we we tend to shift with what's going on in the climate. So, like, this past month, we did a lot of stuff on like voter suppression because right now the election is like the most important thing. And right. so how can faith community, like we did a program on how faith communities can engage voters without, while staying compliant with like their 501c3. Yeah. Right. So like, so we're, we're constantly looking at, you know, different ways to respond to what's going on and making sure that we can do that in ways that are effective within the parameters that we have. And the other thing with that, too, is that if you look at just a bill, they put so much of everything else in a bill that you really have to pick and choose, okay, is this bill right for me with my goals, Mm -hmm. or is there going to be another one that reverses that decision, or is there going to be one where I agree with parts of this bill, but I don't agree with the other parts of this bill, but ultimately it gets me to where I want to go, so I guess I have to let the other one straggle in. Yeah, so, well, and a lot of that is is a compromise, right? Because yeah. when you have such polarized party, like it, somebody's going to have to bend somewhere. Like you're never going to like fully agree on a single bill, right? Yeah, that's the, the but baby and, steps, right? Like, exactly, exactly. <laughs> well, and it's a slower process, but if you can mm-hmm. open up the individual, then that'll eventually ripple out. And, yeah, and, and I think with politics. I think we don't realize how much power we have. Like, I think that we rest too heavily on relying on politicians to change the world for us. Whereas I personally think that what we've seen historically is that politicians bend when society tells them it's time. So if we as a society can say we're not willing to accept these things and that these are the things we care about and we can mobilize, they'll have to bend to us. I mean, that's absolutely what's happened historically through like, every civil rights movement you know, and you know with and Roe v Wade and I mean and with gay marriage like it's it's always been a bend to the culture not the other way around right right and I, I think with that gray being mm-hmm. there that intermingle of everything and especially with people being able to talk to each other with kind of that safety in there that safety net even behind a computer Right. Being able to still connect with another human that shares your stuff. And then that then builds more. It it increases your community size, increases your vocal size. And then you're finding other people that actually share your mentality, share your struggles, share what your base humanity is, which Mm -hmm. is 
hey, I would like to just live without anybody like shitting on me the entire time. That would be cool. If I could just live with the same privileges or the, maybe the same equality, equity, I don't know what the words are. Right. But I just want to be a human and I want you to be a human and not be a dick. Right. So, just don't be a dick. Just don't be a dick. Yeah, no, absolutely. And then also if you can broaden like your being creating a space where you can engage with people you wouldn't otherwise interact with right like because i might have like so one of the programs that i have coming up is like a faith sharing series where i'm specifically targeting faiths that like there's been like netflix documentaries about and stuff where like they're highlighting the most extreme version of the faith like the lds church for one there's so how many netflix documentaries about like the fun the fdl FLDS, right? And your your average, you know, Latter-day Saint is not living in a commune. Right, and like right. and but people have these crazy ideas, right? And they don't so like or actually we have a Scientologist who's coming on as well. And again, that's another one that there's that, Yeah, that's gotta be a big step. Yeah. So I'm trying to, you know, create space where people can ask questions and feel safe to do so in order to eradicate some of those, you know, same thing with like Islam or like Sikhism or, you know, and and we see a correlation in society too that, you know, there's been a a spike in hate crimes since 9-11 towards people who are perceived to be Muslim. And that that doesn't mean that they're always Muslim. I mean, often they're Sikh, often they're of others, some other like Southeast Asian descent, like, and, and they, they can fall victim just because of this, this idea that somebody has of like, this person is dangerous. And what, you know, most people don't even know that Islam is just a monotheistic religion that's, stems from Christianity and Judaism. I mean, it's, it's almost like a natural progression. Like people, people have this like outlandish ideas. Yeah. Like, and they're like, I believe in God, not Allah. And it's like, it's the same person. It, well, Allah is just Arabic for God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is this, or is that the other one for Judaism? <laughs> like one of the, so like in different translations of the Bible, like there are different Hebrew words right. and Greek words for God. Yeah. Yahweh, El- Elohim is another. Yeah. Yeah. That- yeah. It's all the same stuff. And I, well, it's just translations. It's language. Yeah. It's language. That's it. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and it, it would be, it's a, if I can go into a couple different things with education, but if you have that base level of like world religions and you're taught that there's more than just your thinking, mm-hmm. that opens up so much other stuff. And but then, most people aren't taught that because right, we don't we don't teach religious diversity in schools, which is something I'm a, a big advocate for. Like yeah. you you should be like the way that we teach about other cultures is disgraceful. <laughs> like in general. Like I think back to like how I was educated about yeah. like like Native Americans and like I mean I it's like how was I even like these these situ education the quote unquote education that's just from this narrative of whiteness that is and and maleness that's so distorted from reality and it's just so degrading to other other cultures. It's bad enough that we have that, but then at the same time we don't have any religious diversity courses. I mean, even in college, it's not mandated, right? There's an effort in certain schools, like I know at UMKC in Kansas City right now, 
they're trying to develop a mandatory religious diversity course for healthcare professionals because say you that's one of the most important parts right last rites can be multiple things and then not even just that but say you're a muslim observing ramadan and you're hospitalized and they only feed you at certain times of the day that you can't break your fast right what do you do you just don't eat right that's and that's phenomenal i mean it's it's phenomenal to think about because there's something you were and i would never even consider like we would never encounter so so we've started to see this shift like certain hospitals like offering fast breaking meals and things like that but if you don't have that cultural awareness and you just assume that everybody is coming from your same starting place i think it's really important in ways that we can't even fathom um, yeah yeah that's that's that universal truth Mm -hmm. where you you have to look at walking in someone else's shoes and then understanding that and if you're able to have that base foundation of everybody's not you (laughs) like just look around you everybody's not you like we all come in different shapes and sizes we all Mm -hmm. also have different brains that all work different ways and like what you were talking about too is the netflix documentaries and stuff (laughs) like that are sensationalizing some of this stuff but it's that extreme loudness still right right if you're only seeing that part, you're not seeing the other side of whatever bigger picture that group belongs to, right? Right, but that's what we we go for what's like stimulating, yeah. what's going to get views. And that's even the same thing as like, you know, thinking about how like social media and stuff like that influences our perceptions and the, you know, the election even is because fake news circulates at a higher rate than real news because it's not as interesting, (laughs) right? So a lot of people are just constantly being fed misinformation. And so it's like, where do you, how can you pull people out of that and bring them into this space? And so my hope is that if you, and and I've, I've encountered people who have come into programming with a bias and have flat out told me they expected to feel a certain way and then they left feeling completely opposite. Um, like we did an implicit bias training and somebody stood up after and said, my husband wouldn't even come inside because he thought you were going to tell us all white people were racist. <laughs> and she's like, I was so hesitant to come in here, but I, something, I was curious, right? Like, and, and sometimes your animosity towards the idea of something can almost like prompt you to attend. You can hate watch. Right, yeah. right, exactly. Yeah, sure. So, and, and so if you can bring those people into that space and they can, they can, be open enough, just enough that like suddenly this, everything they expected is deconstructed, then they have to admit something to themselves, right? So I've actually seen this happen quite a few times. And it's, it's. I mean, to me, that's always like the biggest win because it's like, oh, you came in here thinking like you, you were going to hate this, you were going to disagree with everything, that we were going to present this from a certain angle, and then you left agreeing with everything we said. And that just shows you how misinformation spreads and like how we can falsely – like that just – it actually, you went to an implicit bias training that revealed your own biases. I mean, it's quite remarkable, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> it's funny how those things work, isn't it? <laughs> we deal with it at work. Your sales, right? So that bias is definitely there. And you, everybody has biases, but if you don't take the time to actually learn about them and see them, then you're never going to be able to get better. Right. And diversity is, is a big thing. And then also making sure that you're going into, for me, if you're going into a sale, right, 
and then you notice that the other person has a chip on their shoulder because they they don't want to be pandered to. They don't want to. Every time they go into a store, it's always a terrible experience. Yada. The biggest win is flipping that script and them leaving with a smile. Like yeah. that, is, that is always the biggest thing, and that's even for you. Yeah, and it's funny how like that can apply in in, in so many yeah. situations. Like any any scenario that you're dealing with people, right? Yeah. <laughs> like it doesn't hmm. even matter what it is. It's amazing, isn't it? <laughs> well, let's shift gears. I want to talk a little bit about the new project that you're working on. If any of the the religious studies has permeated into any of the work that you're doing musically, have you done any of that? Have you found yourself where your thoughts, feelings about the religious ideas have permeated into some of the your writing and, and the, the voice that you want to have with some of that? I think in some ways, I think that my like Zen Buddhist worldview has, has impacted some of my writing lyrically because it, it impacts the way that I perceive the world, yeah. right? So like... I'm probably not going to write the really vindictive, angry breakup song that I might, you know what I mean? Like, so I'm not going to. Where all the good stuff comes from. Right, right, right. So like, I'm I'm being less like reactive, I think, in my writing. Like, not to say that it's not still like kind of cathartic. Like, I mean, writing is always, but, but it might, it's, it it, often it's going to be like that reaction might be sadness, not anger. Like it's going to, it's, it's going to be like a different type of, response i guess so i do think that it i I think that the way you see the world 100 percent influence the way you write in the way in the way that you create art so it can't not but i i it's not like i've gone to a point where i'm like creating a religious record or you know like something like that like you know i've you know, I, I, I mean, I've written some things here and there that are spiritual, not anything that I'm like releasing, but overall, again, like, so with this record, this is a pop record. I'm playing into that. I'm still playing someone into that pop image, which does require like some ego, you know, which is very contrary to Everything like a Buddhist, that right? Learning. Yeah. right, right, right. Yeah. But that's that's sort of the game, right? But it, but it, understanding what it is is like, you know, I mean, I guess, and I, and I feel like I've always, you know, been like, I, you know, right, I, I could write a line that's like super cocky and be like, that's a good one, right? <laughs> but like, I'm not taking it seriously. I think what's most different about this record is that one, there's no pressure, external pressure of like it to perform in any way. Like if nobody listens to it, like, that's fine. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, there's no problem. Like, you know, I'm not trying to like, you know, get picked up by like a right. label. I'm not trying to like profit off of it. I'm not, there's no goal. So like in that sense, there is that reflection of like it just being aimless. Like it's just, it's been fun. Like I've had a good time, you know, writing the songs and like even like reproducing some things that I'd written a couple years ago and like working with Nick and and just kind of like, coming up with something that's that's just fun and like I also think in a way it's more it's it's definitely more like empowering from the sense of I'm definitely not trying to table that line of like being subtle in like what pronouns I use in the songs or like how you know like they're very a lot of them are very obvious in the sense that they're written not only written about women but like almost like well, I can write about women the same way that like Justin Bieber writes a song about a girl, like, and it's yeah. not, you know yeah, what yeah. I mean? Like, and, and almost that like, assuming that like sexual empowerment and like just that dynamic of like, 
you know, why can't a woman talk about courting another woman the same way that a guy does in a pop song? Like, what's wrong with that? Right. And like, and working also working with some with like hip hop artists, like one, I mean, so I've, I've got like one of the, the female rappers is also queer and like, and she's like, really like direct like in some of the lines are like great like you know it, it's so it's very like I said just I, I think it's more like empowering in that sense because it's more like free yeah like like I'm yeah. not holding back like I'm yeah. like I'm gonna say whatever the fuck I want to say and like right. you know and you know it, then and that's fine and like if if there's a niche of people who are like who find that on the internet now and are into it then that's cool like I can tag, I can hashtag like LGBT music, right? Like, uh, yeah, you yeah. know what I mean? Like, see so you, like you were saying earlier that like it, music's accessible now that like you can be in this like more obscure yeah. space and like people. Yeah. So I feel like there's just, it's different in the sense that there's none of those pressures. There's no, there's no really like, like goal or objective for me putting it out there other than it's just fun. Like the songs are fun and some are like, I, I don't know. And a lot of some of the stuff is different. Like, I mean, one of the songs is kind of like industrial, like EDM. Like I worked with somebody that I had played with in a pop band. And he had this beat and I was like, well, this isn't really what I normally do, but I was going to do it anyway. Like, I mean, there's just like a lot of, but then there are some songs like there's, there's a song that I did with a hip hop artist named Switch. And we did a song a couple of years ago called Sorry, fellas, she's with me. And uh, yeah. <laughs> and we created this like really obnoxious video where I was like driving a U-Haul and like I have a lesbian posse and it's basically like a lesbian posse. Yeah. No. And it's literally in the credits like that. And <laughs> I might throw this one on the record as you know, it's already done just because just to give it more circulation because sure. it's a funny song. But it's basically just like the idea that like men always feel they need to interject themselves like like, so the, the you know, like, oh, first they can't believe that the girl they're hitting on is gay. And then I come in, I'm like, sorry, like, she's with me, right? <laughs> and then they're like, well, but what if we make it a three? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, no, nah. no, like, but this, no, no, she's with me. Sir, like, I'm in a committed right, relationship. Right. Can you just, like, not be And you? so it's, but it's, like, done in this, like, really funny way. And then he, when it ends, he's like, but you got a friend, though? <laughs> and it's just such a real life experience. And the video is, like, hilarious, you know what I mean? Because I'm just, like, playing into, like, every lesbian stereotype yeah, that yeah. there is. But then at the same time, it's, like, kind of sexually empowering, like, all these things. So I think I'm just, like, like, I don't give a fuck anymore. So I'm just <laughs> like, good. I'm just going to make this. This is hilarious. I'm going to do it. And I don't care if, like, no one else thinks I'm funny but me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because I think I'm hilarious, right? Yeah, so, yeah. like, we, you know, so I did that. And then around that same time, I'd kind of written a few of the other songs that are on the record. But they were never, like, produced and released in the same way that right. that one was. But it was definitely, like, and that was probably around, like, 2017 or so so that was definitely where it was like a shift in me being like well I still want to make pop music like it's fun but I'm gonna do it my own way now you know and I'm not gonna worry about like it, you know making it or creating a product that's mainstream or whatever let go yeah exactly yeah, yeah. exactly so now it's kind of like so it's just it's it's you know but at the same time like so the same guy I worked with on that 
him and I were talking and we both really love like, you know, like the the old like, I don't know, like 90s, early 2000 songs with like J-Lo and Ja Rule and J-Lo and LL Cool J. Yeah, Like yeah, they're yeah. the like cool duets. Yeah. Like I was like, oh, I love those. So we were like, well, let's make one that just has that vibe. So in that, it has a, you know, heterosexual storyline because it, we're going back and forth. But it was done because we wanted it. We wanted to make that. Right, we wanted to right. emulate that. It wasn't because we were trying to like create some image of like, <laughs> you know, that – this is, you know, that that was for any reason other than we really loved like the, the stuff. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> so, so it's just it's a lot different, and you know, maybe maybe some people will like it. Were you afraid? <laughs> so, were you afraid earlier in in your pursuit of music to pigeonhole yourself? What do you like? To make it to where you're only in one scene, only in one Yeah, I think so. When I think I saw, like, being, like, an out artist as a a potential for pigeonholing. And I think that's why I kind of tiptoed around it in in a lot of ways. Yeah, that makes sense. I I don't want to pigeonhole myself, but I don't want to pigeonhole myself as a music podcast. Right. So I think mine is more important than yours. I think that's what that that means. Because it... (laughs) It's not a, a an important factor at all. <laughs> yeah, but like it's still the same. Yeah, like you don't want to be seen as like you can only talk about this one thing because that's right. you know that's what you're perceived to be doing. You know, and even I like w- when you said you wanted to talk about like the religion stuff. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, cool. Like I wasn't expecting that because even I was kind of like pigeonholing this as like yep. a, a music podcast. So I totally get that for yeah. sure. Yeah, it's a big it's a big thing that I think about and I always wonder when people are doing projects if they have that consciousness of it as well of saying, "Hey, this is what I want to do, but I don't want to be just in a box because I'm more than that. I am the gray, I'm not black or white." Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's important. We'll wrap up with two questions. One is what do you think that you've learned most about yourself with either music, the religious studies or both? Oh, gosh, that's yeah. a hard question. Well, I think I learned that, I don't know, I guess one of the biggest things I learned is that your, like, your projection of, like, what you envision for your life, like, is not always accurate, right? Like, like my whole life, I, I had this idea in my head that I was supposed to do music and that if I wasn't successful in that, like, who was I even? Like, I was waiting so much of even my identity on who I was as an artist. And so coming to the realization, so, like, transitioning from that into what I'm doing now, right, where it's, like, it's not about me at all. Like, like I'm coming into it as how can we build a more – you know, just an equitable society for all people. And like, how can I, how can I somehow contribute to that in some way? It's very different from this like egocentric idea of like, I'm going to, I want to do this for myself. So definitely religion and that experience. Cause I think when I got to a point where I realized this wasn't going to happen for me, I had to reevaluate, right? Like I had to reassess and that, and I had to I had to fall. I had to go through all of these different processes. So I think if I, I, I mean, I think it profoundly changed me. And I think the religion component changed the way I looked at art. Like we were talking about like that, that book, you know, like, I mean, that, that'll stem from a Zen 
con you know concept right. like so it definitely completely shaped who I was as a person I mean I'm not saying that I don't regret like I don't regret doing going all you know all in because I'm not a I'm a person who likes to know like like I want to know that I tried and I gave it my all and it didn't work out and it didn't not work out because I gave up or was right. lazy or right. didn't like you know it didn't work I don't want to be like a what if like and I so music doesn't have that power over me where it's not like daunting me like and I feel like a lot of people I talk to when they see what I've done with my the course of my life they're like I wish I had had the drive or like the the courage and motivation or whatever to to go all in and they're envious of that almost yeah and for me it's like well I already know that I did everything I possibly could and it didn't work so like obviously that wasn't the direction that was intended for my life so I think just learning to not have some like impenetrable expectation of what your life should be and just allowing life to happen to you I guess and to evolve and to like accept things as they come with like appreciation and gratitude and like yeah I think that's like the biggest thing that I've kind of the, the biggest shift that really occurred for me all the kind of buddhist philosophy yeah. <laughs> uh, of just letting it go and let it happen to you yeah right I, and I, and i think that once you you know my teacher often says like when you sit the path is revealed and like i've definitely felt that like when you just allow yourself to be it's almost like it becomes obvious what you're supposed to do and like what steps you you're supposed to take and i've i've really felt like i've just been naturally guided into this you know, the position that I am now. And and actually now I've got a pretty potentially really big opportunity to expand this work to a much larger audience. And well, depending on like when you release this, I guess I can say. <laughs> but you ever watch Winona Earp? No, but I, I think I watched the first episode of it because I was really interested in it. It was that one and... Uh, Van Helsing with a, a female lead in there that I, I checked both of them out. Well, so and then I forgot all about them. One of the the, the actors who plays the character Waverly on the show, Dominique, she has a nonprofit organization called Start the Wave, and I like reached out to them and was like, "Hey, like we are doing a lot of similar things. Like we should work together." Yeah. And yesterday I had a virtual meeting with her what? and like. <laughs> And they like want to do a series of panels about the first one is going to be about the intersection of like LGBTQ identities and like spirituality and faith. And then the second one is going to be like about eco spirituality. And so like there's that's going if if this she's she's planning to moderate. So like that would open up like just to thousands of you know i'm in this small organization in ohio right right right. like if we get 100 people we're like yeah (laughs) you know (laughs) what i mean like we're like awesome we did great you know small steps we get bigger leaps right yeah we're like we get you know in in, you know on facebook live and stuff we might get 400 views 500 views something like that but it's very nominal compared to like what somebody with that much like influence and that like platform could i mean could just expand Band our capacity to really impact people and impact society at large. So that could potentially be a really good way for this this work that 
is so siloed in many ways. Like interfaith communities, like like we said, like most people hear that word, they don't know what it means. Like we, this is an opportunity to kind of break that in the mainstream and yeah. like to this entire subculture of people. Like, so that's pretty awesome. And I'm hoping that, I mean, it, it feels like it's going to work out. Like we've, you know, I got an email from her yesterday. Like, I mean, it's crazy. It's like kind of, it's, <laughs> it's surreal, but like. <laughs> it's also, it, I, I've said it on the show, but it's, it's just amazing that people are people. And if you mm-hmm. just reach out to someone nine times out of 10, they're going to be like, yeah, that sounds great. Let's go right. ahead and do and something. I, I've always said that. I'm just like, it's amazing what can happen if you ask. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. all you have to do is ask. Like, and all, the worst I can do is not respond. I always felt that way, like, when I was trying to book shows or like, right, right. you know, it's just like, well, it doesn't hurt to just. Yeah. And I there. still struggle with it because I, mm-hmm. I just never think that I'm good enough. So, a lot of the people that I want to have on the show, I just haven't contacted <laughs> well, because you I'm a baby. Yeah, yeah. What do you think keeps you motivated and driven to pursue music in this kind of like new light for you and then also pursue your religious work? I don't know. I think when you're an artist, you're always an artist, right? Like it, you can try to quit it as many times as you want. Believe me, I have tried. <laughs> Some part of you always wants to create and like that can transform in different ways but you know and i i'm working on a couple actual like projects right now in ohio like couple bands that i'm playing with and it you know so it's like no matter what i do i always go back to it but it's just found a different place in my life like i it's not taking the forefront like the work that i'm doing in in the interfaith community is really what's like now driving me so i'm now putting all my energy into like kind of working towards something that's outside of myself. And so then it's, there's a lot more like balance and just, I don't know, fun, like pleasure and like just creating for, you know, when you create for yourself in in that, in that space where it's just more of a hobby and it's more of just like, because you want to, you know, like like you just want to put something out there. You don't have an expectation of it. And you hope that, you know, there's this, you know, when I first started doing music, I always said I thought music could change the world because it's a something that transcends barriers of language and culture and like, I mean, race, religion, I mean, everything like people can relate to a song like, and I've had people call me and say that they were listening to a song I wrote and crying because they were going through like something and it resonated with them. And like, it has that power. So like just putting that out there for that, like in and of itself, that maybe it might be what somebody needs on that day at that time. You know what I mean? Is it's very different versus like, I want, I want, I want, I want all these things. I right. want success. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think that you know it it will always be a part of me, but like the intention behind it is what's shifting. And you feel. A little bit more fulfilled with the work that you're doing with the Interfaith Center? Well, absolutely. I couldn't be fulfilled before. Yeah. It was like, you know, in Buddhist, we talk about like feeding the hungry ghosts, like desire. Like you, yeah, like that insatiable desire, like of it's never enough. Because once you get to this one point, there's always another and another and another. And you're never happy where you are because your measure of success is so distorted that you can't just be like, grateful for what's in front of you and that's very different from you know just working to make incremental change like in the world like i mean they're they're almost like polar opposites like you know sometimes i talk to people now and they're just like who are you (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, I think that's a good ending spot. <laughs> I appreciate you coming on. Yeah, thank you, very thank much. you so much. <laughs>